Welcome to another episode of the Sports Mecca Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Abramo. As always, I'm joined by my partner, Sam Hengeli. Today, we have the great opportunity to speak with Victoria Jackson. Victoria is a sports historian at Arizona State University. She is also a clinical assistant professor of history in ASU School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies. She's a writer, a former NCAA champion, and a retired professional track and field athlete. With all that said, Victoria, thanks for coming on our show. We appreciate the time. Yay, thank you for having me. Yeah, for sure. So, you know, this podcast is going to divide into a lot of different topics, but we'll start with, for you, really especially, your role as a sports historian. You know, both Sam and I are very interested in maybe what led to your interest in studying, you know, sports history. And, you know, is there a specific time frame, time period that kind of really sparks your ambition for sports history? Is there something that you really have tried to dive in and, and really educate yourself in? I think it helps explaining my path to to find sports history first and then what area kind of most intrigues me. I like to joke that I drank the amateurism Kool-Aid as a college student, you know, when I was serious and scholarly, I was doing real history and work. And when I was serious about running and practice, I was doing that. And there was like a very hard <laughs> dividing line separating the two. I was an undergraduate student at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and fell in love with history there. I hadn't planned to study history. Going into college, I was more of a math person, but I took a history class in Native American history, actually, and just fell in love with the subject and became like a groupie of two professors at UNC, Theodore Purdue and Mike Green, who taught all of the Native American history classes there. But what I ended up becoming very interested in was education history in the context of the South, segregation and education and desegregation. And in the eastern part of the state, there was a three-way system of segregation because you have large Native American populations that didn't have federal recognition. And so they petitioned the state both to get state recognition and also to have separate Indian schools. You know, so I... I end up going to ASU to get my PhD. And this the year that I started was the 50th anniversary of Brown versus Board of Education. And so there was a lot of academic energy around like the question of how has Brown been successful? How has Brown been not so successful? And, you know, expanding access to equal quality education in the United States. That's kind of my way into the, the education space is how I like it. You'd think I would have figured it out more quickly that, you know, college sports are like a technical or illustration of, you know, the continue, the continuing issues and ongoing legacies of separate and unequal education systems and residential segregation and all of that in the United States. But it took me a really long time, I think, in part because of amateurism to, to realize that. I had a niche and an opportunity to do work in a space and approach it from a way that others hadn't before. And so we, we didn't have anybody doing sports history at ASU. There are more, you know, academics trained as historians teaching sports history on college campuses now. But in the late 2000s, I started building out our curriculum, our undergraduate curriculum in sports history as a graduate student and, you know, came up with my own reading list for the purposes of my comprehensive exams, and then wrote a dissertation on the history of women's intercollegiate athletics and also Title IX, actually using UNC Chapel Hill as like a local story, kind of looking at how law is put into practice on the ground. There, there's been a lot of work done at the national scale, but I think it's more important to see um, at the, the level of the local institution, how people think about creating the equal opportunity to play sports, and maybe perhaps also the foot dragging and pushback against that. Um, so that's a very roundabout way of kind of explaining, I think, some structural issues within higher education that kind of prevent athletes from recognizing the value and taking sports seriously. So that's kind of a mission of mine ever since, kind of building bridges between academics and athletics. And then as a historian, um, I think it's incredibly important 
to understand why and how things are built in certain ways or things develop over time. Obviously, a very big conversation happening right now in the United States around the future of college sports and a redesign of American college sports and governance. And I think it's really important to have historians part of those policy conversations because you need people in the room who think about things in full context. You know, it's one really quick example of that. Um, a lot of the pushback from football coaches and athletic directors against the application of Title IX in athletics. Part of the broader context there was profound economic anxiety because it was in the middle of a recession. Um, the cost of doing business in college sports doubled nearly overnight in the mid-1970s because of you know, crises around oil, inflation, and more. And so, you know, if, say, Minnesota was traveling to play Illinois in a Big Ten conference football game, the cost of that travel doubled. And then these football coaches and athletic directors were being told simultaneously, now you also have to pay for women to play sports. And so that broader context helps to explain the pushback here as well. And I feel like only a historian would be attending to something like that because of our attention to understanding things as closely as possible to how they actually went down in the past and exploring all those contexts. You know, kind of shifting to now, I mean, you've talked about obviously about your role as an educator, you know, what, at what point in, in your life did it turn on in your mind that you wanted to, to teach others and educate others, especially maybe at like at a college level? Yeah, it was, it was those undergraduate classes at the University of North Carolina. I mean, the, the grand irony here is that I was a student and an athlete there during a high watermark during UNC's academic fraud scandal. But I think that really exposes the bifurcated system. I had no idea that there were sham courses and some athletes were being funneled into those classes. I had an idyllic college experience at UNC as an athlete. And um, I think that really underscores that we do have many different industries operating within the scope of intercollegiate athletics. And we need to be acting more honestly and recognizing that and working to optimize them to serve the students who are playing in the various sports. But, you know, I, I just loved the way Mike Green and Theda Purdue taught history. And they were very different in their approaches. Mike Green was more of like a dramatic storyteller and he would get like really excited when he was building to a crescendo in the story he was telling and he would physically kind of embody his excitement while he was teaching to the point where he was like tap dancing at the front of the room and i i think that physicality really spoke to me i'm you know i'm a runner and i'm constantly moving and using my body and seeing him kind of physically embody that enthusiasm and excitement for learning and teaching was just I mean, it was so contagious for me and that I wanted to do that too. It, it seemed like a great life and a great job. And if I could get other people excited to learn history too, that was the goal. Now that I'm, you know, have pivoted away from indigenous history into doing sports history, it's a really rewarding job because the classes that I teach are kind of a trick. You know, say you're an undergraduate student and you're majoring in business or engineering, but you have those general education requirements and you need to take a humanities class and you need um, diversity credit and maybe a global credit or, you know, social and behavioral sciences. Well, my classes fulfill all those general education requirements. So I get a lot of non-history majors, students from all sorts of majors across our university who see a sport class <laughs> that fulfills all these requirements and maybe they're interested in sports. So I get them to take this class, but it's, it's a trip, you know, we're doing real history. We're using sport as our way in, but, you know, instead of going to the lunch counters to talk about the civil rights movement in the 1960s and going to Greensboro, instead we go to public swimming pools. And the effort to desegregate municipal swimming pools um, that happened just ahead of that Brown v. Board decision. So that is super rewarding because I get a lot of students who come in thinking, you know, we're going to talk about like debating, like if Tom Brady is the greatest of all time or something like that. But really, we're thinking about sport in a new way that it matters socially, politically, economically, culturally. And it's often something that you know, students have never considered before. And right. it's a new way of thinking. 
Yeah, and then when you see those light bulbs kind of turn on and things start clicking um, every semester, it's rewarding for me to be working with students who are discovering this for the first time. You're in the Department of the School of Historical, Philosophical, and Religious Studies. How much religion and, you know, philosophical topics do you get into with your students? That's a great question. I think the name of our school can prove to be confusing using it's really an administrative thing we had formerly been a history department a philosophy department and a religious studies department and administratively our disciplines have been combined i think uh, a lot of universities have made this move for a variety of reasons one of them simply being cost cutting you know you get rid of a level of administrative work when it's combined in that way although those people are now doing three times as much work but it's great for somebody like me. Sport is inherently interdisciplinary. Um, and so we have actually an undergraduate certificate housed in our school. And we have a sport person in history, a sport person in religious studies, Carrie Shoemaker, and a sport person in philosophy, Sean Klein. And the three of us came together to build out this certificate which then extends out to other humanities and social science disciplines. You know, it's this 18 credit hour certificate that's injecting humanities and social science training into the many sport related professional degree programs we have at ASU. So we have over a thousand sports business majors at ASU. We have a very robust sports journalism program. And I see it as our responsibility to give those students a leg up in a very competitive sports industry job market. Um, employers want to see that you know how to speak carefully, contextually around various issues in the sport and society space. And it's, it's really a sport and society certificate. So an employer can see, oh, this student knows how to speak to these subjects that might make others uncomfortable or other people might tiptoe around speaking about these subjects. Our students know how to engage with these ideas and that makes them more attractive to employers. And just to, to really showcase that this is very much a true thing, the new incoming head of Adidas North America, Rupert Campbell, he hasn't even technically started. He's still overseeing Russia for Adidas. But his very first day on the Portland campus meeting his new team, he met with ASU faculty members who did a day of U.S. immersion in sport, history, politics, and culture. So if the head of Adidas North America sees value in something like this, obviously that's something that's going to inform their hiring process and the type of people that they want to come and work for a company like Adidas. And Adidas, I think, is reflective of the overall industry, that this is what you know employers are looking for in the sports space, people able to speak about the importance of sport off the field of play as much as its importance on the field of play. Mm -hmm. You mentioned a little bit earlier about sports history. It's evolved throughout the years. And you know I've done some research about you and your work as a writer, as a researcher. You know, a big topic within college athletics is the name, image, and likeness movement. For those who don't know, you know, NIL is what it is for short. You know, now college athletes are able to finally benefit financially from their athletic abilities. And this has been not just for the top sports like college football, college basketball, but, you know, we've seen gymnastics, softball, volleyball, very different types of athletes who have been able to finally reap some benefits from their skill. Um, I'm interested in kind of your thoughts about NIL. Is it finally overdue that athletes are getting paid for their work? Because we spoke with former men's basketball player at University of Texas, A.J. Abrams. He played in, you know, the Kevin Durant, LaMarcus Aldridge, like 06, 07. And he was like, when I told him about his time at Texas, he was like, they're college student athletes, but they're pretty much athletes because of the time and effort that they work in their actual sport. So talk about how you've seen this movement and maybe think it could improve on or just the overall gist of NIL. Sure. Um, well, he and I were almost contemporaries playing in college. Um, the national title I won was when I was a PhD student actually <laughs> at ASU in 2006. And that's really the, the point of the acceleration. The starting point of the acceleration of the business of big time college sports. Um, I was talking with Jeremy Bloom um, about a year ago, actually, in the making of the documentary that he produced and was also the 
you know, the lead narrator for College Sports Inc. for Vice Sports. And we were talking about like how schools, you could tell were still trying to cling on to what was remaining of a scholastic model of sport. But since the money, I mean, it's ballooned. We went from $4 billion a year to $14 billion a year in a less than 15 year period, 2005 onward. And when you keep kind of the compensation or the benefit packages that athletes receive pretty much stable and steady and artificially low, all of that money goes into other things. And you'd think at some point, all of these lines that we've been crossing, all these scales of absurdity that we've been reaching, at some point it would hit a breaking point. Um, but that has not happened, despite the fact that there has been a very big shift in the general public understanding of how fundamentally problematic these structures are. So the, the tension at the heart of this is that, like you, what you were saying, this is an educational program in service of students. You know, Walter Byers and the NCAA of the mid-1950s coining the term student-athlete precisely to evade workers' compensation laws and these kind of pesky state industrial labor relations boards awarding injury benefits and death benefits to players or the families of players and treating them as employees. And so student athlete was a way to emphasize and also kind of conflate amateurism, aka just not paying athletes with education. So amateurism and education become conflated. Meanwhile, you're running it ruthlessly like a business. And so for a half century, member schools of the NCAA got away with having it both ways, calling it educational and in service of students, but running it like a business. And I think we've reached a breaking point thanks to the work of people attacking this from an antitrust perspective in the courts. And then that strategy being deployed simultaneously with the introduction of state legislation, starting in California, saying that schools could not revoke the scholarships of athletes who start to engage with third parties to make money off of their notoriety, to monetize their name, image, and likeness. And then that forcing, of course, other state legislatures to pass similar name, image, and likeness laws because they're competing for recruits. And so what, what name, image, and likeness does, it's a removal of a restriction that should have never been in place in the first place. It's restoring to students who play sports the economic rights of all students, the right to engage with third parties to make money. So for example, I, I played in the orchestra at North Carolina. I was a scholarship athlete and I had stand partners and friends in the orchestra who were scholarship music majors. And if they decided to play a gig on the weekend and make some money, they didn't get their music scholarships revoked, even though they were so-called amateur musicians going to college to become professional musicians. But if a football player at UNC got a free sweatshirt, you know, at a store on Franklin Street, he'd be removed from the sport, he'd lose his amateur status, he'd lose his scholarship, and maybe lose his ability to continue to be a student at UNC. And so this was long overdue. If this restriction had been removed in the 80s or 90s, it would not look as wild <laughs> as it does today in 2021. Um, the advent of social media and the idea of athletes being independent contractors and their own brands is still a pretty relatively recent phenomenon. I turned professional in track and field in 2006. A number of my contemporaries who were running professionally around that time are still in the sport and running professionally. And it's really funny to me hearing them talk about how they still don't really feel like they've got it figured out, how to be like their own brand and partner with companies. And so this idea that college athletes somehow will just automatically know how to do this and have that knowledge is, I think, a, bit, a little bit naive. And then, of course, you have athletic departments doing a complete 180 around the messaging that they're giving to athletes about how to develop their brand <laughs> and engage with third parties. So that's been kind of hilarious to watch that play out. You know, a lot of these athletic departments would do social media training in the past that demanded that athletes make their accounts private, that they not follow back people unless they knew exactly who they were. And now it's like, <laughs> we want to help you develop your brand and grow your followers. Like it's just so clearly 
about just sort of surviving. <laughs> and if there's a change in the status quo, then the schools adapt. But clearly that 180 has been kind of revealing, I think, to me. And, and I think what schools now see is that it's another part of recruiting to show high school recruits, this is what we have to offer to help you with your NIL. Um, and again, because athletes can't offer, sorry, schools can't offer athletes compensation packages like they would if this were professional sports. It's all of those other benefits that schools are competing with each other to try to get those recruits to pick their school. So that's why we have the gold-plated everything in these ridiculous facilities um, and the overspending on that. And I think name, image, and likeness is now simply part of the arms race to woo recruits. It's about that next class of athletes not actually serving the athletes you have right now. That said, like, it's good <laughs> that this restriction has been removed, but it, re it doesn't resolve the fundamental issue of the industry and not paying players in the revenue generating sports, especially in the Power Five conferences. Definitely, when you talked about players with their social media accounts were, were kept private. And then eventually you look in their account, it's like, wait a minute, it's public again. But, you know, you know, Sam and I fall, obviously, you know, we, because we're always watching college sports, we've seen so many of these athletes not only just change their account on Instagram to public, but then they like post an Instagram story saying, open for business, my DMs are open. And this just wasn't the case even last year. And it's crazy because there's a player, Bryce Young, the quarterback for Alabama. This was his first year of playing. He was a backup last year behind Mac Jones. Well, this past off season, before he even played a snap as a starter, he had a $1 million NIL deal. And like, you're just seeing so many of these athletes just getting these ridiculous amounts of money. And I mean, it's good for them, but just like, it's crazy phenomenon that we've seen the past year. But, you know, to kind of continue about your concerns about, about the well-being of college athletes, you wrote a piece last month, I think the first, second week of November on globalsportsmatters.com called NCA Gender Inequity is a Feature, Not a Bug. You, know, you laid out your frustrations with the National Collegiate Athletic Association, which is the NCA, and their efforts to fix the gender inequity. You know, for our listeners who might not know exactly, you know, what you mean by that, can you kind of tell us some issues that you hit on on your article and your research? Sure. So last spring during the men's and women's basketball tournaments in Indianapolis and San Antonio, we had this kind of unique year where we had bubbles. And so it was very easy to compare the experiences of women athletes in San Antonio and men in Indianapolis and see the dramatic disparities in the experiences that athletes were receiving playing in these tournaments. And um, so that was exposed um, first by a Stanford assistant basketball coach, and then later the, the TikTok that went viral from Sedona Prince, the Oregon basketball player who has like a huge following, and, and the outrage and the disparities in the weight room, the weight facilities that had been provided to these teams in Indianapolis, which looked like a professional you know, weight room athlete performance facility. And then in San Antonio, the women had like dumbbells stacked in a quarter and maybe like one or two yoga mats. And that was it. And that was just a very small peek <laughs> into other ways in which these tournaments were very disparate. The collection of reporters on women's sports and sports in general at the Wall Street Journal, Rachel Bachman, Lane Higgins, and Louise Radnowski, um, they did a lot of really great investigative reporting showing all the ways in which it was almost like the women's tournament was set up to fail it wasn't just an afterthought. It was like, a, we don't even care if you don't end up being able to pull this off. So everything in Indianapolis was greenlit and approved over a month in advance of everything that was being approved. There was no hardly any communication between the men's tournament organizers and the women's tournament organizers where you'd think that sort of collaboration would just be inherent to um, plan these national tournaments. So things as, you know, just like the swag bags were different and the food that, you know, the athletes had in both places were different. And the corporate partners who wanted to bring food into the two tournaments were like denied in San Antonio and were, you know, food trucks were approved in Indianapolis, these sorts of things. The recognition 
that the public outrage was a problem. And I think uh, university presidents were really blindsided by all of this because I think there's been a belief that, okay, so the NCAA frustrates a lot of people in its policing of amateurism, that you have all these artificial rules in place that seem to police and punish athletes. Don't do that. That's been kind of the focus of reform effort. Like, let's stop <laughs> forcing money underground and policing amateurism. But at least the NCAA does this other thing well, the running of championships. At least the NCAA does that well. And at least they're doing a good job of maximizing the money to be made from the championships that they run. And so um, as the NCAA was scrambling <laughs> to make sure other women's sports championships were looking kind of comparable to men's in the other spring sports, including softball and golf, they realized that even as much as they were hustling, they weren't going to be able to make it perfectly comparable in the experiences. So they hired a law firm to perform an external gender equity review. And um, that firm was Kaplan, Hecker, and Fink. And they had access to a lot of information within NCAA headquarters that had not been previously made public. And it was like peeking under the hood and discovering an entity that's been held up as being excellent and wonderful at doing business and running championships. And it turns out it's horrible at doing those things. So, you know, this idea that the NCAA is good, good at business was exposed as being absolutely incorrect. The business really here is to push down <laughs> the revenue potential of other sports to lift up the men's tournament. So undervaluing, underselling, underappreciating the potential revenue generation of women's basketball in, in two degrees that are outrageous. So the women's basketball has been thrown in with all other sports championships and a package sold to CBS Turner gets the men's basketball tournament. But what's thrown in to the CBS Turner deal is the right to activate the corporate part partnerships, fan festivals, everything else for all the other sports. So they're disincentivized to lift up the other sports because they're being televised by their competitor. And all of those other championships are sold for only $34 million a year when an independent um, economist and his team did an analysis of what value the women's basketball tournament actually is, it's between 80 and $115 million a year. So clearly just throwing it in and not caring about how much this product is actually worth. So there's that component. The fact that women weren't able to use March Madness and their branding also works to make the women's tournament seem less legitimate. And all of it plays into this idea held by the general public and also media outlets that women's sports are inherently always gonna be a money drain and unpopular. And it turns out the NCAA was manipulating the market forces to make it appear as if women's sports are a money drain and unpopular, when in fact they're, they're holding women's sports back. It's the great, the NCAA has been the greatest economic and social institution holding back the growth of women's sports in the United States. That's really what those detailed reports revealed. And for every, anyone who's interested, those reports are publicly available at genderequityreview.com, I believe is the address. But if you do a simple, you know, term search for NCAA gender equity review, you'll find mm. the reports in two phases. The first focuses primarily on women's basketball. And the second focuses on all championships. Mm -hmm. In your piece, you mentioned there's a loophole. Uh, this is in your article. You mentioned there's a loophole in the Title IX law, mm -hmm. you know, which was enacted in 1972, which prohibits sex-based discrimination in schools or education programs. Can you tell us a little bit about what that loophole is? And then for, one, for people who don't know, like uh, more about Title IX. Well, this really goes to um, the way things have been for the last half century, that the NCAA has been able to have it both ways. Call this enterprise educational and then run it like a business so that everybody makes money except for the athletes whose performances generate all that revenue. And so um, this is a really classic case example of that. So Title IX is a gender equity and education law. 
Title IX is part of the civil rights legislation of the mid-1960s through the early 1970s. And so we have all of these protections put in place as a part of the civil rights laws. And the title of the Civil Rights Act that included gender, or the term that was used then was sex, um, did not include education. And then the law about education did not include sex or gender. So Title IX closes that gap. It provides the equal opportunity equal educational opportunity on the basis of sex, term in the 70s, gender, term today. And since we're kind of unique in the world that we have our elite sport development in schools in the United States, this has been revolutionary. You know, it's why Team USA women always dominate the Olympics, because there's no other country that has the kind of bizarre collection of quirky historical forces that we have. Elite sport development in school, college football, only played in the United States and growing into a very robust industry in the billions of dollars um, and a gender equity and education law, which means, you know, that women have to have comparable athletic experiences too, because athletics in schools is classified as educational. It's this having it both ways conundrum <laughs> that um, the NCAA has created. So this is also on brand for cases that make it to the Supreme Court. The technical issues of that case are very different from the broad takeaway that becomes a result of it. So and a woman athlete who played volleyball had graduated from her university in two and a half years, and she wanted to start a graduate program at another university and still play sports since she had more years of eligibility remaining. This is exactly what I did. I graduated from UNC and I competed as a grad student at ASU. But in the 90s, that was against the rules of the NCAA. And so what you had to do to be able to compete for a second institution after you had graduated was file for a waiver and get that waiver approved by the NCAA. And this athlete had her waiver denied. And when her waiver was denied, she decided to sue because she claimed it was gender discrimination because men athletes in her situation had their waivers approved more frequently than women did. And so that's the case of gender discrimination that she brought um, and filed a federal anti-discrimination lawsuit. So that case makes its way to the Supreme Court. And then the Supreme Court, <laughs> in a unanimous opinion, ironically written by gender equality icon Ruth Bader Ginsburg, <laughs> says that Title IX does not apply to the NCAA because the fees that schools pay to the NCAA are too far removed to make the law binding for the NCAA. So schools must comply with this gender equity and education law because they receive federal monies directly. Because the NCAA is receiving those monies indirectly, the court said the NCAA need not comply with Title IX. So that's, that's a loophole. <laughs> The NCAA takes that and runs with it because this organization would not exist if not for students and not for schools. So, and also you're calling it educational when you're fighting antitrust attacks on amateurism in the courts at the same time. So you get in the situation where the arguments that the NCAA makes in cases often related to women's sports are in direct opposite direction from the arguments they make when they're facing antitrust challenges in the courts as well. And so um, even if Title IX does not apply to the NCAA, you'd think gender equity would be a guiding principle in the running of championships within that organization. And so that was the, the biggest takeaway from the Kaplan, Hacker, and Fink um, reports is that you know, the recommendations that they're making are you need to have somebody doing regular audits to make sure there are mechanisms in place checking for gender equity when it comes to swag, when it comes to budgets, when it comes to collaboration and overall governance and planning of championships and those sorts of things. And from the 90s onward, you know, that, that has not been the case. There has been no sort of mechanism or check for a gender equity at the championships level within the NCAA. Uh, that was a very technical answer. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Victoria, so... Uh... So being at ASU, um, I don't know if you're uh, familiar with the Netflix series called Bad Sport that just came out. And the first ep first episode, it was about the uh, 94 uh, Arizona State basketball point shaving scandal. Uh, do you know, uh, have you done any research on it? And do you think uh, that amateurism was probably the reason why that whole thing ended up breaking out? 
Yeah, um, we've had many cases of point shaving, kind of gambling scandals in college basketball. I think the, the biggest one was in 1950 with a ring that was kind of the origins of it were in these pretty awesome summer basketball leagues that, you know, the mafia could tap into since there were athletes coming from all sorts of schools playing in these summer league games and <laughs> realized this is an audio conversation, but I'm pointing to the Northeastern United States. New York mm -hmm. is like the hotbed of that um, activity in, in 1950. And yeah, I mean, it's like every decade <laughs> mm -hmm. we have another pretty robust point shaving scandal exposed. And yeah, it's, it's absolutely related to um, the restrictions and the prohibitions on compensation for athletes in sports that make a lot of money and have a lot of Kind of money around them. I think sports gambling were most likely going to see an uptick in this sort of activity until athletes start getting paid by the schools they're playing for, if that ever happens. And it's not to say the presence or absence of pay either <laughs> diminishes or increases the likelihood of athletes kind of um, falling into to situations where they take money in, <laughs> in less than legal ways, um, but there's definitely a correlation there. I mean, the FBI probe into the underground economy of men's college basketball is just a very small taste of what happens when you artificially restrict, you know, uh, an industry and workforce when there's a lot of value and demand for it. Um, the money always goes underground. The parallel here, we're so insular. <laughs> when it comes to American college sports, that I think it's really useful to step outside of what we're doing domestically to think about um, what this looks like elsewhere. You know, a similar phenomenon happened in the Olympic movement. When there were restrictions on athlete compensation to compete in the Olympics, when amateurism was the guiding principle of the Olympic movement, um, and you had shoe companies that really wanted to get their shoes on the world's best athletes, that money went underground. And it's like an open secret. <laughs> in Mexico City in 1968, that iconic image of Tommy Smith and John Carlos and Peter Norman on the podium. Um, Tommy Smith and John Carlos have a black glove fist raised in the air. And John Carlos is wearing beads around his neck to represent lynching. And um, you know, there's like a symbology to what they're wearing on their body when they go up on the podium. And one, another part of that is that they took their shoes off and had black socks on to represent poverty. But they took their shoes off, but they made sure to take their shoes with them and place them on the podium because both of them were receiving under the table money from Puma. And that money is contingent on those shoes being in <laughs> Olympic spaces with lots of eyes and media coverage on them and TV coverage on them. And so if you look at photographs from that podium ceremony, you see their pumas on the podium beside them. And so, yeah, I mean, it's, it's the same thing with what we see in college basketball to this day. Um, and then, of course, you know, Sonny Vaccaro has been so great speaking about all of this. Sonny Vaccaro is really the person who innovates and begins the whole process of shoe company endorsement contracts. Um, the origin of that was the ABC summer league basketball camps that he would run for the very best high school stars in the country. And when you have a collection of the best high school stars all coming together, college recruits show up. And these camps were funded by Nike. And Sonny Vaccaro, who's very entrepreneurial, says, hey, Mike Krzyzewski, hey, other basketball coach, if we pay you and send you Nike shoes, you make all your athletes wear them. We're happy. You're happy. So the, the beginning of the, you know, athletic department wide shoe deal, the origin of that was Sonny Vaccaro brokering these deals with basketball coaches. And now these coaches, not only are they making millions from the school, they're oftentimes making six, maybe even sometimes seven figures from the shoe companies too. And yet only, <laughs> only since July 1st, <laughs> you know, when um, the NCAA paused its restrictions on name, image, and likeness, will we have the possibility of college athletes being able to engage 
with shoe companies and third-party endorsement deals. But that, you know, there's been kind of a lag. A lot of the bigger corporations have really been waiting to start to begin to engage with athletes with these deals. Like Gatorade just announced its first athlete partnership only this week with Paige Buckers. That was Gatorade's first NIL deal with a college athlete. And so I think the shoe companies have been kind of playing a wait and see game as well. But yeah, that's a, a long and roundabout way to talk about how these things have long histories are ever present. I didn't talk about the advent of sport gambling um, and the ability to gamble on college games. That coinciding with an amateur model where schools aren't paying athletes and they're not treated as employees, to me is a recipe for disaster. It's just rotten and a problematic collection of structures that, that we're facing right now. And, and it's gonna need to be resolved. And one good way to resolve it is for schools to start revenue sharing with football and basketball players. Interesting. Um, so I want to get over, switch over to your uh, running career because I'm a runner myself. You're a uh, 10K uh, national champion at uh, Arizona State when you were a, uh, competing as a graduate student. What did it feel like winning a championship and what, what was it like racing at Hayward Field? Oh, those are great questions. What, well, first, what are your events? What do you run? 5K, 10K. Nice. The best events. Very cool. Do you, you still compete? I have two years left of eligibility, but I'm not sure if I'm going to use it or not. Okay. Well, cool. It's funny. I, I was way, much better at the 10K than the 5K. And we've had exceptional 5,000 meter runners at Arizona State, like Amy Hastings Craig and Des Gavila Linden and Shelby Houlihan. But somehow I'm the school record holder in the 5,000 meters. Mm-hmm. Um, but I won, I won my national title in the 10,000 outdoors. And I mean, my coach and I, I think, knew I was probably going to win that race, but the rest of the field did not. I think it was um, the, the broader understanding of that race was that it was a surprise win. Um, but my training had been going really well. I went through a two-year period of no injuries, and um, it was really hot. The NCAA championships that year were in Sacramento, and it was really hot, which benefits you know, people coming from the desert training in the heat all spring. Um, So I ran a pretty decent time despite the heat to win that race. I ran 32.54. Within a week or two, I was, uh, I signed with Nike. And so at the USA Track and Field National Championships, you know, a few weeks later, I was wearing a Nike kit. That process and transition happened really quickly. One of the great parts of that race was that, Shalane Flanagan um, was my teammate and roommate in the dorms at UNC. And um, her mom was a professional runner. She was the first woman to break 250 in the marathon when she broke the marathon world record in the 70s. And she's a photographer at Track and Field Me. And I hadn't seen her, so I didn't know she was there. And I crossed the finish line and, and saw Cheryl, <laughs> Shalane's mom, and just lost it. <laughs> like... I was so excited to see Cheryl because, you know, I, I had faced some adversity as an undergrad. I, I had a history prior to my running of depression and anorexia. And the reason I was able to compete in grad school was because I was on a medical release at Carolina and Carolina took such great care of me um, to help me get treatment for my eating disorder and depression, knowing that if I were to compete as a grad student, I'd have to compete at a different school. When you go on a medical release, you can't compete for the same school in any sport again. So I got to keep my scholarship. The team got their scholarship back since there's a cap on how how many scholarships a sport can give out. So I didn't have to feel guilty about taking someone's scholarship. And then to have Cheryl there who, you know, knew that story celebrating at the finish line was just awesome. And my coach, Louis Quintana, who's now the head coach at Oregon State, he, he's just such a fantastic coach and human being. And I'm a very happy runner. He's a very happy runner. And we just clicked from day one. And it was such a positive, rewarding, joyful experience to run fast. The other great thing about my experience at ASU was that we were an excellent team. We were only the second women's team in history to trophy in all three seasons at the NCAA championships. Finishing in the top four at the NCAAs gets a trophy. 
and we were um, fourth in cross country, third indoors and third outdoors. And, you know, only the second team in history to do that after Tennessee in the eighties. And when you're on a really excellent, successful team, there is that like chemistry and synergy where everyone is elevating their performances. Jackie Johnson was our heptathlete. Jackie Johnson uh, won seven out of eight national championships in the multi events during her career at ASU. She's the most phenomenal athlete. <laughs> and um, we had uh, our pole vaulter won. Our throwers were just dominating all three throws. And it was so much fun to play off each other and have everybody's performances elevated. It was an, an exceptional experience. And I'm, I'm so lucky. I came to ASU to study history and had no idea the team was good. <laughs> so I was, was, I was really fortunate. Yeah, that's phenomenal. I did not realize that. That's like a really interesting fact of how just dominant Arizona State was at one point in the, in what cross country and track, being able to podium and all its cross country indoor outdoors, a really phenomenal uh, accomplishment. I'm not sure how many other programs have done that, but that's a really significant accomplishment for sure. As a, as a runner, my coach really focuses on the mental aspect as well as the physical aspect. How much would you say that you spent on the mental aspect of running as well as the physical? I think that's huge. Yeah. It's so fortunate that we have so many prominent athletes talking about the importance of mental health and not just like psychology for performance, but well-rounded, overarching overall mental health. It's really nice to see people like Kevin Durant and others leading conversations in that space. And I think women athletes have been ever present in this space too. Um, Anna Cockrell, who um, she was, I think the first or second woman to, to win NCAA championships in the 100 and 400 meter hurdles, and then turned pro and made her first Olympic team in Tokyo um, coming out of USC. She gave a commencement address when she had graduated. She was competing last year as a grad student, but two years ago, she gave a really important commencement address around the importance of mental health. Again, not for performance, not for athletes, but overall. And I think the pressures in balancing all of these high performance situations that athletes face in college, just make it even more crucial that you're balancing all these competing tensions and responsibilities and roles. And um, she wrote a really great piece for the Players' Tribune about this topic too. So it's crucial. And I think coaches have been varied. Um, you know, not all coaches are the same. And so some coaches have been on this game for a long time, whereas others see it as kind of a headache or a nuisance. I was fortunate that at UNC, my coaches prioritized me and my well-being over you know, what was owed to them because I was on scholarship. I'm really fortunate that I was in a position coming out of high school where I could pick a school where I knew the coaches cared about me. I realized that a lot of high school recruits aren't in the situation I was in because I was a, a top runner coming out of high school. A lot of times, you know, if you're kind of a second tier high school recruit, you go where the money is or you go where the opportunity is. But I was in a a position where I, I had the privilege of being able to pick. And so um, Michael Whittlesey is actually the coach at Kansas now. He had been my coach at UNC and I'm really grateful for Coach Witt. He was in Sacramento when I won my NCAA title and he came to watch me race. Indoors, I got All-American and we had displaced UNC <laughs> um, by one point and I, I scored one point indoors and I was kind of nervous um, and they were so proud of me and happy for me that I've kind of gotten healthy again and resurrected my career. It, they didn't even seem to care that ASU displaced UNC by one point. We both ended up getting trophies fortunately. <laughs> I think it would have been a different situation had we pushed UNC off the podium. Yeah and then Louis at ASU. I mean I was a PhD student and a TA working 20 hours a week and in the fall that was always when it was pretty much impossible for me to be traveling with the team, practicing at, a, at the highest level, doing my responsibilities as a TA and doing my graduate work. And he would tell me like, okay, the next two weeks are hard, run on your own. I know you'll take care of business and we'll see you at the airport when we fly. <laughs> 
to the conference meet. I know you're going to score for us and contribute to the team. And I want you to make sure you're prioritizing graduate school. That to me, that was Louie recognizing a potential mental health challenge because it's impossible to balance all of those things at the highest level. But he knew taking the pressure off in the sports space just a little bit was all I needed to stay in kind of a healthy balance. And having talking, like just communicating around these things, getting out ahead of them, kind of operating in a preventive way rather than reactive way is crucial as a coach. And it takes ever-present work. Coaches have to be really tuned in and tapped into what's going on with all of the athletes on their teams. We're not all the same. We're all kind of balancing and facing various things. And it takes a whole lot of work and a, a lot of caring. I, I feel for coaches, it's a job that demands a lot emotionally from coaches too. And I think it's important that we recognize and talk about that as well, that this is asking a lot of coaches to be able to respond and be there for their athletes in this way also. Yeah, definitely. Um, we're kind of like trending towards more coaches being more athlete-based rather than a uh, coach-based, which is a, a very important thing. And uh, I remember I've coaches in the past, if like, if I had a, if I had a conflict, it's like practice. And then I, if I needed a class, he always said the class always goes before the um, athletics. So that was, I was very uh, grateful for that. And, uh, and some people forget you know, about coaches. They're not really coaching a sport necessarily. They're coaching people more and they just happen to be uh, an expertise at a certain sport. So I think that's something that everybody should think about when it comes to coaches and athletes as well. I've uh, been doing a lot of research and debating with uh, a lot of my friends who are our fellow runners as well about um, heat training and altitude training. Before we go into that argument, I want to talk about what what's it like training in in Phoenix during like the spring and summer. It gets very hot during that time and it may not be as enjoyable for some runners to like just be out there in Phoenix and they'd rather be in uh, drive up north of Flagstaff just to get some more enjoyable uh, runs in. Well, a few things. It's definitely manageable. I grew up in the Chicago suburbs. And if you flip your season and compare running through the summer in Phoenix versus running through the winter in Chicago or any cold climate that gets a lot of snow and ice, this is hands down from my perspective, way, 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 way. Like if there's no contest, it's way better. And you just, you have to train your body to get up early and get the work in and be able to fire at all cylinders, you know, really, really early in the morning. It means kind of managing pace because you also don't want to overtrain and burn out. It, it means getting um, blood work done more regularly to make sure you're not kind of going into energy depletion or have any deficiencies when it comes to like iron and that sort of thing. Um, it is a lot like altitude training. So pace targets come down. When it's super hot, you don't want to be pushing your body beyond what it can handle. And training at 85%, 90% is way better than crashing and burning because um, the rate of injury goes up when you're playing on that line and potentially crossing that line. And then, you know, it's really just three months. And really within that two months that are the hardest, it's kind of the cumulative toll over time that is the problem, not necessarily any particular day running in the heat that's a problem. It's like six weeks in a row of no relief from that heat that can become a problem. But then the other, you know, nine to 10 months of the year, it's like the best place to train. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and you don't have to worry about slipping on ice and that sort of thing. We have a lot of soft surface here too. You know, I'm a, a huge proponent of training on soft surface. We don't have like the cross country type conditions that much of the rest of the country has, but we do have mountains. And so running on that terrain where you have to use a little bit more total body athleticism um, is beneficial for a well-rounded athlete too. Yeah, I think it's, it's a wonderful place to train. And certainly now that I'm retired, it's the best place, in my opinion, to, to be an everyday runner for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I ran in Phoenix during the winter and it's a very, I enjoy running in Phoenix in the winter versus in Kansas where in Kansas where I have to put on like 10 layers of clothing to be able just to warm up and run. So with, uh, with the uh, 
heat training and altitude training. Um, do you think there's one that's significantly more effective than the other? And uh, explain to me why why would that be the uh, case? Can I can you give me a good argument for either one? Yeah, I mean altitude training, the red blood cell production that you get and the, the benefits you receive in oxygen uptake from training at altitude are are fantastic and. You can try to replicate them with like altitude tents and altitude sleep chambers and that sort of thing. But, you know, the real thing, it probably doesn't get much better than that. You know, in training high, playing around with where you do workouts, maybe coming down midway for hard workouts. So a lot of the pros who train in Flagstaff will go down to Sedona to do like a hard track workout session and then go back up or come down to Phoenix even to do a track session at sea level and then go back up. What's nice is, you know, it's only two hours from here to flag and it's easy to do um, that sort of playing around with the elevations that you're, you're training and living at. When, you know, when it's your full-time job, that's the sort of work that you put in to really push the boundaries to see, you know, to be the best version of yourself and see just how fast you can get. So yeah, I mean, there's definite benefit to altitude training. If you're racing in heat, it's important to train in heat. So, you know, the conditions of the race that you're training for without pushing your body over its limits, you do want to kind of harden yourself to those conditions. So the athletes who had been training to race in a very hot and humid Tokyo and Sapporo for the marathon in these past Olympics tried to replicate those conditions leading into those games. And that's why in Athens in 2004, Dina Castor and Meb Kofleski were successful and both podiumed and earned Olympic medals. They did a fantastic job of understanding the conditions of those race and best preparing themselves for the conditions of those race. Ne- neither of them were the fastest on paper, kind of like Molly Seidel in, in Tokyo, hands down was not the fastest on paper, but she knew she could run well in those conditions and, and potentially medal. And she she deployed the playbook of Dina and Meb in Athens, and she did it beautifully to, to earn that medal in Tokyo. I, re- I read Meb's uh, autobiography like a couple of years ago, and he was talking about like he would go in a hot sauna and put on a hoodie and like long pants on to like get himself prepared for that. And uh, and it definitely does help out. I do like I do agree with like heat training I think that it is I think I can make an argument that's more effective because a lot of the time you're going to be racing in the heat especially in like a place like Kansas or Phoenix September it's going to be you're going to be you're going to find yourself racing like 85 and then in Kansas you got that humidity and uh in the Midwest we like to call it a Midwest altitude training when you're running in the humidity and then I, I noticed one thing too about the heat and like the desert versus the heat in the Midwest it's so I, I remember I was in Vegas hanging out with a friend and I went on some runs in Vegas and I noticed I wasn't like, it was still very difficult with the dry heat. I was still like need to hydrate a lot. I noticed that my shoes weren't like really, I wasn't sweating as bad, but like in the humidity, it's like a hot day in Kansas. I'm like, my feet are drenched. It looked like I got to have a swimming pool or have a shower like after a run in the humidity. So I think I think there's a lot of good that goes with heat training. I'm not saying altitude training isn't effective because there's a lot of proof, but I think like I think if you if you're in the heat, I think you'll get just as much of a benefit, maybe a little bit more versus uh, altitude training. Your sweat evaporates in in the dry heat, and so that's where athletes can get into a lot of trouble because they think that they're not sweating, but they are. And so hydration is just as important in that dry heat as it is in the, the humidity. Definitely. Um, so another another thing I've been trying to think about a lot uh, is when it relates to high school runners is mileage. Uh, a mm-hmm. lot of like debates on some of this stuff. Uh, should they go higher mileage or do you think it should go lower mileage? Uh, for like a high school runner, um, male and female, uh, what would be a uh, what would be the uh, right type of mileage that like a top top high school athlete should do? But the answer is it's different for everyone. Bodies develop very differently and your body is still developing when you're a high school athlete and when you're a college athlete. And so um, it's really important to be tuned into your own body. That said, you do want to not necessarily take risks, but test things out to see what your body responds well to. 
just telling yourself I'm a low mileage runner might not be true. Your body might respond well to, to running medium or higher mileage. I don't think any high school athlete should be running high, high mileage. There are very exceptional cases of very elite runners who are simply already world-class and therefore are doing things differently from the typical 15, 16, 17, 18-year-old. But that that should not be something that should be replicated in a program or, or by anyone. I wasn't very low mileage. I was middling mileage as a high school athlete. And I went to a summer running camp that was based in Indiana, but their main camp took place in Michigan that promoted running every day, high mileage. And I was a pretty hard-headed teenager where I would just not do some of the races that this running camp would organize. Like I just tap out of some of the stuff. And that, you know, there were a lot of high school coaches that would go to this camp and bring their athletes. And I could tell like that was not common to sort of question the methodology or just know that your body was different from what they were. I don't know what, why I was that way, but I'm really glad that I was because it meant that I wasn't going to get injured. I think the, the most important thing is to be able to train so that you can compete. You know, if you've got high school athletes kind of already going through injury cycles, that means something's wrong with the training or the nutrition, you know, getting blood work done if you're getting injured in high school is a good idea. And then also taking a second look at the, the training and the training surfaces. I think high school athletes really need to make sure they're running on soft surfaces, doing all those little things to make sure you're just actually able to, you know, train and compete. Injuries should not be part of the daily risk that high school athletes are taking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think another way, I think the biggest way as well to combat like the, the injuries and prevention is to play all other high school sports, like play like, you know, soccer and basketball. You don't have to do all those sports for four years. Like most people I know have done like just for their freshman, sophomore year, and then their junior, senior year, they just like find their, their they just stick with their main and best sport and or the sport that they uh, like the best. I think that, I think I, I would hope high school coaches would encourage it a little bit more. And uh, I don't think that runners should run a high mileage. I think they should play a little bit more sports and get their body strengthened up in different parts because because years from now, you haven't even come close to hitting your peak yet. And you're not going to come close in high school. It's more, I think like the 28 age, I think is we're like, you're really at your prime. So it's better just like build your body up and strengthen all those parts. Now when you're a youth and like, just run like year round for, uh, for many years and I'll eventually come and bite you at, at the end of the day. And, uh, I think that uh, may, I hope more high schools that encourage a multi-sport athlete rather than specialization. That is absolutely, um, you're preaching to the choir. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, high school athletes should not be specializing. And talk to any college distance coach and they get excited about multi-sport athletes because they're looking for mm -hmm. potential. They're looking for athletes they can develop. And if you've got you know, a, a senior boy who's running 415 in the mile, but he also plays soccer, you're going to recruit that kid and you want that kid over the 410 miler who all he's ever done is run um, because he's tapping out already potentially the likelihood of you know being tapped out is much higher with the athlete who is specialized versus the multi-sport athlete and then yeah that athleticism you get from playing multiple sports not only is it beneficial to athletes it's what college coaches are looking for and then you're also speaking about a philosophy of long-term development and a, and a philosophy of lifelong running. That was crucial to me. And, you know, being college roommates with Shalane, her, both of her parents had been professional runners and her dad, Steve, was always reminding us, you're in this to be like, you want to run when you're 90, right? <laughs> so you need to make decisions today <laughs> that, you know, get you to a place where you're going to be able to run for life. And that was really helpful to have kind of Steve Flanagan's voice in my ear because <laughs> it's tempting, right? You know, especially when you start winning championships or you turn pro and you're like, okay, I'm a professional runner now. I'm supposed to be doing this all of the time and being the very best I can be. And 
your idea of what that is is often counterproductive and, and actually not in line with what it takes to be, you know, among the world's best. So, yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, before uh, we uh, let you go, we want to say thank you very much for coming on and spending your time with us today. And uh, do you have any social media accounts or uh, other things that you're willing that you would like to promote? And so uh, people can learn more about you? Sure, thank you. Um, I'm most active on Twitter, which seems to be where most academics and journalists are. <laughs> so on Twitter, I'm at History Runner. And yeah, I that's where you can find a lot of my writing too. So if I have, you know, a new article out or something like that, I'll be promoting it on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And if you're ever in Phoenix or thinking about, you know, doing degree programs at ASU, I'm always happy to, to connect with people and um, help them figure out what they want to do here at ASU. Very good stuff. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, Victoria, we really appreciate you coming on and definitely different topics we were able to touch base on with uh, your time as, you know, sports historian, history professor at ASU topics regarding college athletics and then great deep dive into the sport of running yeah for those who are listening to our show for the first time all our past and future episodes are available on spotify and Apple Podcasts. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at The Sports Mecca.